Let me ask you to reach for a Bible, if you would, and turn to page 996. Page 996. This is our last uh, sermon in 2 Timothy 3 before Christmas. We'll pick it up again in the new year. But we come this morning to chapter 3 and verses 1 to 9. Just as you're turning there, if we've not met, my name is Paul. I'm the minister here. It's a joy to uh, meet you, to welcome you, and I hope you'll be able to stick around at the end, make yourself known to us a little bit. Uh, Stay, as Salim said, for tea and for coffee. Why don't I pray as we turn to God's word before we read it together. Almighty God, we've been thinking all morning of your love and the great expression of your love in your son, his perfect life of love, his death on the cross uh, to serve others, his kind and gentle rule of the world now. We would pray that in your love you might speak to us through your word now and uh, equip us, strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us, whatever we need, so that we might grow in our appreciation of your love and in our love for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read then from uh, chapter 3 and verses 1 to 9 of 2 Timothy. Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. If you'll keep that open in front of you, there's also an outline of the the sermon on the back of the notice sheet you were given as you came in. And my aim this morning is for us to understand the times in which we live. If we don't understand the times in which we live, we will never live wisely in the world. I'm sorry to mention this, but if a student doesn't understand deadlines and timetables for exams and things, they will be busy. Maybe you are busy binging on Netflix, uh, while there are many other things that you could and perhaps should be doing sometimes. If a household doesn't understand the financial times in which we live, they'll spend money they don't have and fail to provide for their future. And if a church doesn't understand the times in which we live and in which God has called us to live in service of him, engaging in his work, then we will be permanently dissatisfied when our experiences fail to match our expectations. So we need to understand the days in which we live. God has put us here in St. Andrews as his church 
He's given us the, the clearest set of marching orders any group of people could ever ask for. We know that we're here to bring glory to God by knowing him and loving and obeying his son, Jesus, and by making him known as we make disciples of all nations. That's our great privilege. But we've seen uh, that in 2 Timothy that the mission God has entrusted to us is costly. It's like being a soldier in a battle or an athlete in a long-distance race or a farmer working in a field. And one of the main reasons it's so hard is because of the times in which we live. Um, Paul wrote this passage first to educate us about these days and thereby to equip us so that we might persevere in God's work together. We're going to dive straight in this morning with our first point. The world is exposed, be aware. And verse 1 again says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So understand this, mark this, know this. It's something that may not be immediately obvious, but you need to understand that in these days there will be times of terrible difficulty. The NIV translates it, there will be terrible times. Uh, the last days he refers to here, that's the whole period of time between the, the first and the second coming of Jesus. We know Jesus came first as Savior. He will come again as judge. And the New Testament calls this period in between the last days. And a chief characteristic of these days is that there will be times of difficulty. Now, that's not just a, a series of temporary crises, but a permanent state of affairs. Uh, this then is why living and working for Jesus is so brutal. It's true that some seasons are worse than others, some places are worse than others, and some people suffer more than others. But mark this, it's something that everybody needs to know. Get ready for this, prepare your mind. The times in which you live will be painful and perilous. And Paul says that the cause of these difficult times is people, strangely enough. But then as you read on in verses 2 to 4, he gives a list of 18 qualities that describe the people of St. Andrews and of every place. Again, it's not that every individual manifests all of these qualities in equal measure all of the time, but they are a, a general description of what people are like. And I'll see what you think of it as we go, but my own experience as I've been reflecting on it is that reading through this list slowly and weighing each word is like looking in a mirror. And if you stare for long enough, you become very aware of your own blemishes and faults. Uh, the list is structured like a really big sandwich. Um, the bread around the outside isn't some sort of posh sourdough artisan loaf or something. It's made up of misplaced love, arrogant pride, and inhumanity. So if you look at the start and the end of this little section in two to four, you'll see that peoples will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Uh, and the reason that these qualities bracket this little list is that the root of our problem is not that we love too little as human beings, but that our love is misplaced 
or misdirected. It was one of Augustine's great insights in the fourth century. When um, Christians talk about sin, we tend to talk about rule breaking. There's a bunch of things that God tells you to do. He says, don't steal, don't tell lies. And if we break the rule, then we are sinning. That is one way in which the Bible talks about sin. But another way is this idea of disordered love. And the point that Augustine was trying to make was that, that the God who made us not only is love himself, but that he designed us and created and made us to be at our best and at our happiest and at our most human when we are loving him and loving each other. And the problem comes when instead of loving God, we turn in on ourselves and choose to direct our love onto other things instead. And there's a tragic irony that goes with it, because if you, at the level of motivation, the reason that we choose to love other things and other people more than we love God is that we think those other things somehow have the power to improve our life, to make us happy and fulfilled. But they never can, because the only one who can is God himself. And so this sin of disordered love doesn't end up liberating us, it ends up enslaving us and harming us like the most toxic of relationships. Plug that back into 2 Timothy. Why is our, our world such a hard place to live for God? The answer is full of people who put the love of self and money and pleasure above the love of God. So if you were to wander around any business, you were to wander around any shopping center in the run-up to Christmas, you tell me which love is driving the choices that we're all making in those places. It's not the love of God, by and large. It's the love of money. Or you're off on a night out around bars or restaurants of any town. Which love is in the, the driving seat of our decisions? The love of God or the love of pleasure? Or look into any human heart. And apart from the work of Christ in us, who wonderfully transforms us, who is loved more? God or self? Uh, the psychologist uh, Alfred Adler used to ask people to think about their worst nightmare uh, when he was trying to help people to work out what it was that they'd set their love on. And he said, what thing, if it was taken away from you today, would almost take away your whole reason to live? What would you have to, to lose to think that almost all of your value and your significance and your identity and your worth was drained from your life like that. And Alfred said, whatever that thing is, that's your great love. Uh, biblically, it's called an, an idol, something that's functioning as your God. And Paul's saying, by nature, our issue is that we don't love God as we should. And we might wonder what all the fuss is about. Okay, so our love's a little bit off center, but why is that such a, a big deal? Bite further into the sandwich though, and we see that the result of 
misplaced love is pretty ugly. So verse 2 says people are, by and large, proud, arrogant, and abusive. And verse 4 says treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit. And it's because when we start loving ourselves too much, we puff ourselves up, and so we treat those around us, sometimes terribly. Well, you can let me know afterwards over coffee what you make of Paul's diagnosis. Is this right? Is it fair? Is it you? Is it the people you know? Do we, as a rule, tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought? Do we tend to like it when we're celebrated and not like it if our successes or kindnesses are overlooked in some way? Have you ever met someone who's willing to speak badly of other people in order to make themselves look good? Have you ever met someone who's willing to stop at almost nothing to achieve their own ends or who was willing to treat you maybe like dirt so that they could get what they want? Paul says that's what people are like in the last days. In the middle is a list of missing virtues. I call them missing virtues. In the original, all bar one of them is in the negative. They're words like unkind, unholy, unforgiving. And again, there's a sort of progression of sorts in our sandwich because misplaced love leads to pride and that in turn leads to a society that is marked by missing virtues. Verse two, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, heartless, that's in the sense of without regard for many others, unappeasable or, or unforgiving because pride loves to bear a grudge, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, all qualities that destroy relationships. And the one word I missed out in the middle is the, the sandwich, slanderous. It refers to unkind speech in the way that we normally do, but literally the word is, is devilish. And that's a deliberate thing on Paul's part. The devil was named up in verse 26 of chapter 2. Um, Paul's saying that when we stop loving God, when we turn in on ourselves, we become less and less like God and more devilish. And his big point is that this is what people are like. Not all people all of the time, but plenty of people plenty of the time. And that's why it's going to be hard to be the church in these last days because we live in a world like this. It's funny though because Paul's not really asking us to do anything with this information at the moment. He's just training our minds, shaping the way that we look at the world, formatting, reformatting our expectations of the way that people will treat us. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But I wonder if you notice the massive shock of verse 5, just as you glance down. There's an ambiguity as you read through verses 1 to 5. Because as you read in verse 1, you, you think Paul's got to be talking about people who are outside of Christ. He's got to be talking about the world, right, as we have been so far. They are definitely in Paul's mind. But by verse 5 we realize that at least some of these people live and work inside the church, not out of it. 
and we discover that the real reason that these days are so terrible is not that the church is in the world, but that the world is in the church. And that's our second point this morning. The church is contaminated. Be careful. Uh, when I talk about church, I'm not talking about our particular local church. I hope we're all trying to be nice to one another. We'll need to reflect on that as we'll see. But I'm speaking about the, the visible church. The, the sum total of those who claim to know and to speak for God and for his son, Jesus Christ, in the world. And verse 5 saying that in these last days, the visible church will always have within it those who are frauds. So that somehow if we could um, hold a really big convention and manage to get together all of the church leaders and elders and preachers in Scotland in one room, we would find among them those who are lovers of self and of money and of pleasure, people who are proud and swollen with conceit and who lack even the most basic human virtues. And one place they reveal their true selves is in the way that they uh, treat those who live and teach the same gospel as Paul. Uh, over the years up here, I've got to know a fair few ministers who were once part of the Church of Scotland in their case, but who felt unconscious that they had to leave. And uh, their stories aren't all the same. Some were treated very well by their former colleagues. When I'm chatting with one guy at the moment, many have been left with really deep scars from the way that they've been treated by people that they thought were friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. They'll tell tales of terrible slander, uh, deliberate misinformation, lies to congregations about their ministers, bullying, money grabbing. And it would be shocking if verses 1 to 5 hadn't told us about it. We're not surprised. The world is in the visible church. There will always be those who, as verse 5 puts it, have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Power is a loaded word in Paul's mind. Um, the gospel itself is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. We've seen in 2 Timothy that Jesus abolished death. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He freely gives a, a crown of righteousness to all who believe. And then, too, the, the, the Holy Spirit of power dwells within all of God's people to transform us into Christ's likeness, to empower us to suffer as good soldiers of Christ. We've been given a spirit, not of timidity, of cowardice, but of power. So then the false teacher who denies the power of Christianity is missing both of those things. The powerful gospel that alone can save, and therefore the powerful spirit who alone can transform. There's an external form of spirituality, but strangers to the reality. Back in Ephesus, Paul was talking about men like Hymenaeus and Philetus from last week's passage, people who departed from the truth, you might remember them. And from verse 6, we learn more about them. Among them, uh, says Paul, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
Uh, Paul's not making a, a, a general point about all women here. Actually, the word weak isn't in the original, but within the, the church in Ephesus, there were a number of women who would be in what we might call today a, a spiritually vulnerable place. Uh, in their case, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So these were women whose consciences were burdened by the, the guilt of past sin and whose lives were controlled by their present godless desires because they, they didn't yet know for themselves the liberating power of Christ's gospel and the transforming power of the Spirit. So they knew their need, they were dissatisfied, they longed for the freedom that Jesus brings. And so they turned up at church and they enrolled on courses and they went on retreats and they turned to spiritual counselors in the church and they were always learning. But because the people to whom they turned, their teachers had departed from the truth, these women were prevented from ever coming to a knowledge of the truth for themselves. And you'll see what a sickening scandal that is. That someone comes to church because they know that they need the very thing that Jesus offers. But instead of pointing them to Jesus, these self-loving teachers, hide him away and then take advantage of these poor women instead. It's like going to your doctor because you know you're sick. And the doctor sits there and smiles and writes you a prescription for poison. Take this three times a day. Just try a bit harder. Be true to yourself. It'll be great. And you leave on a path to death. There are two big applications, I think, for us here. Um, the first is in the, the text with verse 5, with respect to these false teachers. Very simply, Paul says, avoid them. Avoid such people. You'll see if you were here last week that the tone is really different to what um, Paul told Timothy to do with his opponents in chapter 2 there. He was talking about correcting them gently, teaching them, uh, hoping that God might lead them to repentance. This time the command is to avoid them completely. We're talking, that's because we're talking about two very different groups of people, or at least people at two very different points. In chapter 2, they're genuine believers who are in error. Here in chapter 3, they are opponents, not just of Paul, but of the truth of Jesus. They claim to speak for him, but they don't even know him. Now, obviously, I, I hope we're all clear that you need to be very careful before you say that about someone. You never rush to judgment. I personally would think we would always want to seek first the path of gentle correction. We'd want to treat people with charity and grace, um, even when they're in error. But Paul's saying that there comes a point when a, a teacher has swerved so far away from the apostolic gospel for so long and so defiantly, and or their life is so far adrift, and their, their teaching uh, that they're giving about the Christian life is so far adrift from uh, the righteousness that Jesus requires, and significantly that they're unwilling to learn and to repent. They won't change. They won't come back in line with the truth. And at that point, Paul says, avoid them. 
you won't be popular. No doubt you'll be called bigoted and schismatic. You'll be misquoted. You'll be misunderstood. And that's part and parcel of being faithful and of why it's hard to be faithful in these last days. But if we're meant to avoid the false teachers, there's another application here that I've been mulling on, and I think we should all do so. It strikes much closer to home, the, the charge to guard ourselves. And we've said in the first instance, verses 2 to 4 are about the world and about the worldly false teacher. But I'm not sure that there's a true believer who could read that list and fail to feel the searchlight of the Spirit exposing darkness in our own heart. I reckon if we were inclined to be honest and transparent with one another and we went round the room, we would all be able to put a finger on particular words there that challenge and expose us. I want to stress that doesn't mean that none of us are Christians. Um, in God's amazing grace, if we've trusted, do you know this? If we've trusted in Jesus, he has washed away all of our sin and guilt. He has already clothed us in his righteous perfection. If you've never come to him and asked him to forgive you, he would do that for you today. Wash all of the mess away in one go if you were to ask him. He's that loving and gracious. And so when a, a Christian relates to God now, we don't relate to him on the basis of our ability to live a perfect Christian life, but on the basis of his death and resurrection. And it changes everything. Because when the Christian reads this list now, we don't need to think that we're somehow disqualified all over again from God's love. Or just to go home beating ourselves up, as though that would help. Instead, we can just pray to our Father in heaven, in the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, and ask him to reorder our loves and to change us from the inside out. This was something I thought I might pray. It might be the kind of thing you want to pray. Lord, you know my heart. You know that even though I love Jesus and I want to serve him, there are ways in which I continue to seek satisfaction and happiness in the love of myself and of pleasure and of money. So, Father, please have mercy on me. Thank you that because of Jesus, I can know I've been cleansed and forgiven. Please change me. Unite my heart in undivided devotion to you. And help me to put all of this worldliness to death. That's God's will for your life if you're a Christian. And if it's your desire, if it's your prayer, well, the gospel of grace has the power to reorder our loves and to renew our lives. Why not make something like that your prayer today for you, for our whole church? You know what's really sad? Um, when you get to the end of the, the Bible and the book of Revelation and you read the letter to the church that Jesus sent to this church in Ephesus of which Timothy was the, the leader, he says, I've, I hold this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. 
and repent. So it was back to front, because the way it's meant to work is that as the church loves God, so we can impact the world around us for good. But the sad story of Ephesus was of the world impacting the church for bad. They fell away from loving God. So we need to guard ourselves, but to do it confidently, because God has given us his spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Well, I'm done, but I just want to um, mention verses 8 and 9 as I close. It was going to be a third point, but you'll see it's just a conclusion because I ran out of time. Uh, but even though these last days are difficult, we don't lose heart. So Paul says the truth will be revealed. Be confident. Verse 8, um, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They won't get very far. Their folly will be plain to all as was that of these two men. Um, Janus and Jambres aren't named in the, the Bible, but Hebrew tradition says that they were the Egyptian magicians in Pharaoh's court who tried to copy the signs that Moses and Aaron were doing back in Exodus at the time of the, uh, the Exodus. And the point is that at first they had a, a form of power. Uh, Aaron's staff turned into a stake, uh, a Stake? That would be nice. I had steak last night. Uh, they turned into a snake. The staff turned into a snake, and uh, theirs was able to do the same. Moses turned the waters of um, the, the Nile to blood, and Janice and Jambra was able to do the same. Moses produced lots of frogs. They produced even more frogs, which didn't seem to help the situation very much. Only later, though, when Moses produced a plague of gnats were the, by God's power, were the limits of the magician's power exposed. They said at that point, this is the finger of God. And Paul's using that well-known Old Testament story to say to Timothy, the false teachers around you have a form of godliness and many will be taken in by them. They'll be the ones celebrated on, on the TV. But one day, in the next life, if not in this, they will be exposed. And so he says, Timothy, church in Ephesus, St. Andrew's Free Church, understand the times. There will be terrible days because people are horrible and the church is contaminated. But don't give up on your work. Keep on guarding the gospel, even when it hurts because the truth will be revealed in the end, and God hasn't finished with any of us yet. Let's pray. Father, we want to start with ourselves and to recognize that there is too much of the world in our own hearts, in our own church, and we pray, therefore, that you would have mercy on us, remind us again of the forgiveness that is ours in the Lord Jesus, and reorder our loves, we pray, that we might love you as we thought, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, love our neighbors ourselves, and so that we might be a model of a community that is truly human, 
uh, truly accepting of one another with all of our quirks and differences, true diversity, but loving one another and united in love and service of you. Um, we pray that you would help us to guard ourselves in that way. And we pray too that you would help us to understand the world in which we live and understand the nature of the visible church so that we're not surprised when we are hit by it and hurt by it, but that we might stay true to you and persevere because we know that it's only in the Lord Jesus that there is hope for our world and for a lost church. So please, would you draw our world back to him? Would you draw the lost church back to him? In his precious name. Amen. We're going to close with two songs, one from uh, Psalm 63.